I know the curls look odd dressed in full black with these tassels hanging down. Understand that the intention of this is to try to be holy to a God who called our people to be holy. Rather than then looking back at the Jewish community with judgment or misunderstanding, respond with some compassion, some prayer, some relationship, and from sharing truth from a place of love and a desire for understanding. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world and the headlines through both a Jewish and Christian lens. Today, we're going to talk about some of those sensitive subjects that you probably wanted to ask your Jewish friends, but you secretly didn't want to offend them, so you didn't ask. So today, we're just going to go there. We have about four topics and I'm going to ask Ezra about each of them, even if it might be awkward and uncomfortable. And I'm sure he'll answer awkward and uncomfortable. But you got it. <laughs> join us along the ride. So let's discuss. So Ezra, let's start with something that many people think of when they think of Jews, which is kosher. You know, there's kosher delis. You see kosher on nutrition labels. What is kosher foods? Why do Jewish people still follow kosher foods? And is that another question? Is that something Messianic Jews follow as well? Within the spectrum of kosher foods, you have all kinds of levels and distinctions depending on what stream of Judaism you follow or what rabbi's teachings you implement in your own life and how religiously you do that, how strictly. But generally, kind of zooming out 10,000 foot view, kosher foods are the idea that God has said to the Jewish people in the Torah or you know the, the first five books of the Bible, predominantly Exodus, Exodus onward after they, they come out of slavery in Egypt, and he's setting apart for himself this holy people, this people that looks distinct from the nations around them, that God has said, there's foods you can eat and there's foods you can't eat. And then more recently in not the Torah itself, other than a very, very specific thing, but that specific thing has been generalized to become something very common in kosher eating, kosher diet. The rabbis have taken uh, one verse and not only said, here's what you can eat and what you can't eat, but here's what can and cannot be eaten together. So let me cover the what you can and can't eat first. So much of the Torah, these 613 commandments, Carly, that we know as the Torah or Jewish law, many of which, by the way, can't be followed today because they require a sacrificial system done by the Levites in a tabernacle or a temple. And there is no Jewish tabernacle or temple standing today. The first and second temples have been destroyed. So a lot of it's not followable which is why you get so many so many traditions and practices in modern Judaism. It's how do we, as best as we can, keep the commandments of a holy God in the absence of a temple in Jerusalem. But back to the issue of kosher, this and really uh, many of the other things we'll talk about today have to do with God really drawing a line of demarcation between the culture of Egypt that Israel had existed in for four centuries, and even prior to that in the land of Canaan with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob, who become the, who are known as the 12 tribes of Israel, in an idolatrous land filled with pagan people who didn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, who didn't know Adonai, if you will, and who 
did what they did to worship the gods they believed in. And so God delivers the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and on Mount Sinai and then through Moses to, to the Jewish people. He's in essence saying, here's how you're going to distinguish yourselves in practice and in appearance to those around you as a people set apart to me, not given to the other nations around you. You belong to me. And one of the ways you're going to demonstrate that is that I'm going to call certain meat clean and certain meat unclean. Why did he say that? There's a lot of debate on that. Now, now some of it in, in modern health, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking of a of a book I read called The Maker's Diet. We're not necessarily promoting that by a Messianic Jew, actually, who started researching, okay, let's look at the Torah. Let's look at the, the meats and the foods God said are clean and the ones he said are unclean. What's going on here? And what he found was that in many cases, the toxicity level in some of these meats, like pork, like some of the more obscure reptiles that maybe in some countries people consider a delicacy or, uh, or, or other other meats, the, the toxicity level in terms of parts per million in those meats that are called in the Bible unclean are much higher than they are in the meats like venison, like chicken, like goat, like uh, like beef. So it was it possible that God was actually saying, hey, I need to preserve you as a people. And one of the ways I'm going to do that is by telling you to eat meat that's going to be healthier for you that's going to develop less toxins, that's going to cause less illness, that's going to go bad less quickly. Very possible. We don't know. You know, modern health would indicate, sure, maybe that's maybe that's part of what was going on. But at the bottom line for the Jewish community, for the, for the more religiously observant Jewish community is, God said it, do you agree with him or don't you? And so he said, here's the list of things you can eat. These are clean for you. These are acceptable to eat together. And here's the list of things that you can't. And that has made its way into modern Jewish, uh, what's called kashrut or kosher living uh, as what can and cannot be consumed. And then there's one verse, Carly, I'm anticipating what's probably your next question. And it's, okay, what's the deal with meat and milk? Where do we get that from? And that idea, which now in modern kashrut, in modern kosher diet, the world over almost is present is this idea of you can never have meat and milk together. In fact, you need to wait till one has exited your stomach before you can have the other. So like in, in Israel, in a religious community, one, no dairy can ever be on the table with any kind of meat product. And two, you got to have separate dishes, separate refrigerators, separate dishwashers to keep these things uh, absolutely separate. And three, if you're going out to a steakhouse, for example, in Israel, you're never going to have a butter sauce on the steak. It's going to be olive oil because there can be no dairy. And not only that, but you need to wait a minimum of three or four hours after eating that meat meal before you can go get ice cream. And so anything not only that is combining meat and milk or that's even the appearance of combining it. Well, you say, can I have coconut ice cream? Technically, yes. But coconut ice cream looks like ice cream, which looks like dairy. And so to not offend a brother or to not make it look as though you might be breaking the rabbinical commandments about kosher eating, you don't ever combine these things. Well, where the heck do we get this from? I don't remember God saying you can't eat meat and milk together. It comes from a little verse Exodus 23 verse 19 that says you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now what's going on here? I, the, the rabbis agree and disagree on the concept. I tend to think it's the idea that milk for that young goat was life, right? It was the, it was the liquid of life 
don't use it to be a part of this animal's death experience. Or maybe there's something in terms of the chemistry going on that God knew and the children of Israel didn't. But anyway, it was a very specific command. Don't cook a goat in its mother's milk. And to we, we can see the rabbi's commandments, Carly, almost as a series of concentric fences around the law right? Like God's on Mount Sinai. Don't get too close. Stay this many meters or this many feet away from the mountain while he's up there. In the same way, the Torah, in order to not break it, the rabbis through the centuries have built wider and wider and wider concentric circles to make sure that nobody ever even gets close to breaking the Torah. And not only that, that nobody ever thinks someone's even getting close to breaking the commandments of God. Uh, because we're called to be a holy people. And so from this one verse has come this idea that it can never even appear as though you would be cooking a goat in its mother's milk, or let's say it can never even appear as though you've combined dairy and meat together. Is that a biblical idea? No, other than the specific commandment about cooking goats in their mother's milk. But it's certainly a rabbinical practice. And in modern Judaism, if a restaurant that called itself kosher in Israel, in New York City, whatever, were to serve feta cheese next to a hamburger or a cheeseburger, they would lose their kosher certificate and the religious, religiously observant Jewish community would never eat there again. This tradition built on the commandment. So, I mean, I assume you're going to say yes and no that some Messianic Jews follow kosher eating and some don't. But do... Do they follow it in different spectrums? Like, Ezra, do you eat cheeseburgers? I do eat cheeseburgers. I wouldn't necessarily have a goat burger with goat milk, uh, but I'm fairly convinced that the burger that I'm eating did not come from the same cow that produced the milk that made the cheese that I'm eating it on. Let me let me answer maybe the question you're really asking in terms of awkward and uncomfortable. Do Messianic Jews or Jewish believers in Jesus still eat kosher. According to the rabbis, if I combine meat and milk, which I do, not breaking Exodus 23, 19, but other forms, you know, I'll have ice cream with, you know, uh, chicken stir fry. In terms of rabbinic kosher law, the fence built around the law, I'm not keeping kosher. Because even though I don't eat, you know, alligator or serpent or pork, you know, my wife and I just choose not to do that out of a commitment to not eat meat that God said is unclean for our people as a as a remembrance that we're set apart for him and as a demonstration to the people around us that he's called us to be separate to demonstrate something of his glory. It's not an issue of righteousness or unrighteousness. It's an issue for me of obedience and living as a witness because I believe the Jewish people are called to be witnesses to the mercy and the holiness and the glory of God to the people around us. Not because we're better, God says. You're not better. You're more stubborn than anybody else on the face of the earth. But I want to use you to demonstrate something to the nations about who I am. So we don't eat things that the Bible says are unclean. In that way, we keep kosher. And I think a lot of the Messianic Jewish community chooses to do that. Some don't. Some say, you know what? It's not an issue of righteousness. I don't feel any conviction about it. I'll eat, uh, I'll eat bacon. I'll eat a bacon cheeseburger. I'll eat pork. I'll eat, you know, whatever things that the Bible would say are, are unclean meats. But uh, I would say by and large, most or many in the Messianic Jewish community uh, don't do that. But I think like my wife and I, many do combine meat and milk, not we don't break Exodus 23, verse 19, but we'll combine those things because we understand that God sees we're not breaking 
we're not breaking the Torah. Now, that being said, if we invite religiously observant Jewish people, friends, family members over to our house, we're probably not going to combine meat and milk because it's a it's it's a it's an offense. It's a stumbling block to those people. And why would we do that, right? If we're trying to uh, demonstrate something of the love of the Lord, we're not going to put put somebody in a position to violate their conscience or to in 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 the case of a religious Jewish person's worldview, actually break a commandment, even though it's a rabbinical interpretation of a commandment. So we have the spectrum in Messianic Judaism. All I can speak for is what my wife and I do and don't do and, and why we do and don't do those things. Okay, so let's move to an even more uncomfortable topic, circumcision. So is this something Jews still follow? Do Messianic Jews follow it? And then we actually had someone write in and ask, what do Jewish people think about Gentiles practicing circumcision? Yeah, so what's what's the idea here? Is this just a Jewish tradition? Is it a commandment? It's actually a commandment. Abraham is circumcised and his sons are circumcised and something that's interesting that our audience may not know. I mean, you may you may know this, but you may not know the why behind the what. Arab peoples and Muslim peoples generally are circumcised. It's actually a commandment, a tenant of of Islam that males are circumcised. Now, males are circumcised in Islam generally in the eighth year. Jewish boys are circumcised in the eighth day per the commandment in the Torah. Why are the Muslims circumcising? Well, remember, who's the father of the Arab and, and then the Muslim people? It's Abraham's son, Ishmael. Common name even to this day, like so many Jewish young men uh, or old men, for that matter, are named Yitzhak or Isaac. So many out of honor, out of deference, many Muslim men are named, certainly an Arab Muslim boy would be named Ishmael, out of honor of Ishmael. Ishmael is Abraham's first son. Remember the one born, well, God's promise in giving us a son through Sarah's delayed, so we're going to take matters into our own hands. Go sleep with your servant, and the servant conceives and bears Ishmael. Ishmael is circumcised before Isaac, because Isaac isn't on the scene yet. So the first circumcision of Abraham's son in faith is Ishmael. Why do I say that? One, it explains why the Muslims are doing what they're doing. Two, it connects Arabs and Jews together in terms of a shared father of the faith. And three, because God has a destiny. I know this isn't what we're talking about at all today, but I just want to mention it for our audience. It's it's short-sighted. I'm going to say it's wrong thinking to say standing with Jewish people means vilifying the Arab peoples or the Palestinian peoples. God loves the Arab people. He loves Muslims and wants them to have a transformative encounter with his son, Yeshua, Jesus, so they can come to faith in him and be saved just like he does the Jewish people, just like he does every other people group on the face of the earth. So uh, circumcision is, is unique to the Jewish people, and it's carried on to this day as a right. If, if you believe in God and you're a religious Jew as a commandment that should never be broken— even if you don't believe in God, it's a tradition and a right in the Jewish community, but not exclusive to the Jewish community. Yes, it's unique, but it's not exclusive to us. But Abraham circumcises Ishmael, Abraham circumcises Isaac, and we can fast forward then to Exodus. Moses, who is circumcised, we know because he was born a Jewish boy by the Nile River in Egypt, and he ends up at 80 years old, kind of in the back 40 in the wilderness, marries Zipporah. And he's called by God in the burning bush experience to go back and to be used uh, by God to deliver his people from slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. And on the way, Moses' son 
has to be circumcised. Why? Because God shows up and is ready to kill him. He's ready to wipe him out on the way back to Egypt. Well, what on earth is going on here? God's called Moses to be an agent of deliverance for the Jewish people. And yet God says, I am not going to let you live unless you do what I've commanded you to do for your sons. You missed it, whether it was idolatry under Zipporah's father, whether it was social pressures in the place where he was living, whether he just forgot. God's in essence saying, I'm not going to use you to deliver my people until you first practice and remember who you are in your sons, in your family. And so Moses' son is circumcised on the way back to Egypt, and Zipporah is not happy about it for whatever reason. You're a husband of blood to me. You're a bridegroom of blood. She has to do it to prevent the son from being killed, but it happens. So anyway, we see this commandment and this this, uh, very solemn observance of, of circumcision done in the eighth day carried on through Jewish faith even today. Why the eighth day? Now we understand through modern medicine that the ability of a newborn baby male's blood to clot quickly peaks on the eighth day. If you do it before, they risk bleeding out. If you do it after, it's a longer healing process. And so God, the ultimate doctor, the father of medicine that we didn't know till centuries later, commands you on the eighth day, circumcise your sons. And he knew, I think he knew, look, you're out in the wilderness, you're in these dusty, dirty places, infection is a reality, let's do this in the time when when those risks are at their lowest. Uh, and so there's, even though there's a commandment here, according to the holiness of God, there's something of his watch care and his mercy for Israel and for all people shown in circumcision. And to get even more awkward, circumcision, this idea of taking the foreskin off of a male's most private place, what's going on here? Uh, why did God call, you know, the rabbis disagree on this also. Some say it was because God needed to preserve a people who would, who would grow in number quickly in adverse conditions. And the idea of circumcision may be increasing men and women's ability to have babies with more ease. That's a thought without saying any more, you know, naughty words on this podcast or grossing out our audience. That's some of the thinking is maybe God was making a way for men and women to conceive children more easily through circumcision. Others have said it was a way to prevent sickness and infection. But I think something that many of the rabbis can agree on that we need to understand here is Israel. Actually, the word Hebrew, Carly, we see it first used with Abraham. Hebrew, Ibrit in Hebrew, is the people with whom a covenant had been made. It's not important to recognize here, not the people who made a covenant with God, the people with whom a covenant had been made. And that comes from that passage where Abraham falls asleep. How do I know you're going to make my descendants as the sand and the, as the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore? God says, I'll show you. Abraham falls asleep waiting to make the covenant with God. And in his dream, God himself as a burning torch passes through the, the, the severed pieces of the animal. And that's where we get this language, Ibrit, Hebrew, the, the people with whom God had made a covenant because he swore by himself. It wasn't something that depended on Abraham other than Abraham's faith in God. It was a covenant that was made with our people. And so as an outward sign in the most vulnerable private place of our body of an inward reality, of a spiritual reality of a covenant having been made with us, God says, I want you to roll away the skin as a demonstration of the, of the covenant. And I think we see that language in the new covenant, right? In the new Testament. And as God's saying, don't circumcise your skin, still do it. 
hey, Jewish believers, still circumcise your sons because the gifts and the calling and the identity that God gives to us, Jew or Gentile, are irrevocable. That's always your identity. Were you Jewish when you came to faith? Remain Jewish. He actually says in 1 Corinthians, were you of the circumcision? He's talking about Jewish believers. When you came to faith, don't un-Jewishify yourself. And were you not of the circumcision, were you of the nations who don't traditionally circumcise, stay that way too, because it's not an issue of righteousness. It's an issue of obedience. And he says, God's not, ultimately what determines our relationship with him isn't the circumcision of our flesh. It's, is the callousness, is the foreskin of our hearts actually rolled away so that our hearts are exposed and vulnerable to him. So it doesn't get you into heaven. Yes, it identifies a Jewish person by commandment, by intention, but it doesn't make somebody righteous or not righteous. What it does is it demonstrates an inward reality that God has rolled away callousness on the hearts of our people and made a covenant with us. So that's the awkward idea behind circumcision. To answer your final question, should Gentiles do it? That's entirely up to you. There's invitation there. People do it for medical reasons. People do it for faith reasons. As we said, the Muslim community, you know, we work a lot in Ethiopia through our partners, our partnership with Jewish Voice Ministries, Carly, among the Beta Israel Ethiopian Jewish community. And what's interesting is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church and the Ethiopian Muslim community, by faith, by, by religious practice, also circumcised. So pretty much the entire nation of Ethiopia, at least the, the men in the nation, are circumcised. You have Jews, you have Orthodox Christians, you have Evangelical Christians, and you have Muslims. Almost everybody except some scattered tribes in the very south of Ethiopia are circumcised, not because they're Jewish, but because their cultures have adopted that practice. So if that's meaningful for you, go for it. You're not earning anything with God, uh, but for the Jewish people, it's meant generation to generation to be an outward sign of an inward reality. Okay, well, quickly moving on from that awkward topic, what is Jewish thought behind tattoos? Yeah, We'll go right to the verse. Why do the rabbis generally say that tattoos are forbidden or at least frowned upon uh, in the Jewish community? It comes from a verse in Leviticus. Again, remember, these are God's commandments to Israel to distinguish them from all the peoples around them. And we know historically that in Egypt, a lot of people got tattoos. They actually inscribed the names in hieroglyphics or what, or the symbols of the gods they worshipped or of ancestors who had died and, you know, who they were uh, honoring, venerating on the skin of their body. At not just Egypt, but other pagan peoples around Israel. And so God says, one of the ways that I'm going to distinguish you or make you distinguish yourselves from the peoples around you is I don't want you, Leviticus 19.28 says, no carvings on your skin. And that's been generally understood to mean tattoos. Now, there's a loophole, maybe, because people say, well, it was about idolatry. Don't carve the images of idols or gods or ancestors that you're worshiping on your skin. Can I put a, a flower or a picture or a you know, Hebrew word that says chazak, meaning I'm strong, on my skin? Uh, not sure. Some rabbis say yes, but I'll say generally in the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, tattooing is frowned upon. Now, when we talk about the worldwide Jewish community, remember that about half of that community, if not more, is secular. They're not subscribing to Torah, to God's commandments in the Old Testament as a way of life. And so you'll see a lot of Jewish people who have tattoos. And maybe similar to some of our listening audience who at 
we'll call a rebellious stage of life. You wanted to get back at your parents, whatever. You just wanted to do something crazy, got a tattoo. That's common in the Jewish community as well. So you'll see that. Does Again, does it is the Lord unable for a Jewish person who, if we can say, breaks the commandment of carving something on their skin? Is he unable to redeem us? No. Praise God, Jew and Gentile alike. We've all made decisions that perhaps are unpleasing to God or overtly disobey his commandments in Scripture. As Jewish people, as Gentiles, praise God that he has made a way for us to be righteous with him. It's not through what we carve on our bodies or not. It's through the righteousness that we have through the blood of Jesus, of Yeshua, his sacrifice for us to become sin for us. So generally frowned upon in the Jewish community, not unredeemable. So what about for Christians? It, can they get tattoos? Is, does that same commandment apply to them? I don't believe that the, that the 613 commandments God gave to Israel to be a distinct set-apart people in the earth all apply to Christians. And I think in Acts 15, right, we see this question. All these Gentiles are coming to faith. And the question is, well, what on earth do we do with all these non-Jewish people coming to faith in our Messiah, in Jesus, who came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel? And who's, we now understand the Savior of the world. And they said, okay, look, don't eat meat that's sacrificed to idols. Don't strangle your food. Don't engage in sexual immorality. And there's the Ten Commandments. So it's it, they, they boil it down into, okay, Gentiles aren't, aren't, and I believe this is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving these, these men leaders in the faith community in the first century wisdom in, in this discussion, this debate they're having, what's required of Christians? What's required, we'll say, of non-Jewish followers of Jesus, as they would have been known at that time when they're having this debate, and it's not the 613 things. So are Christians obligated by the scriptures not to have tattoos? No, that I, I would not say that. Uh, are are Christians invited to consider the commandments as something God's saying is a way to demonstrate something to the people around them? Sure, but you're not becoming Jewish by keeping the Torah, and uh, you're not earning anything with God by doing or not doing the things that Israel's commanded to do. So we say that a lot on the podcast, but I want to be very clear about that. Okay, last one, Ezra. So I remember probably 10 years ago, I was at a train park in Arizona, and there was a guy who was sitting on the on a bench. He had a long beard. He was wearing like what looked like a top hat. And he had these white pieces of string hanging from the bottom of his shirt. Now, at the time, I didn't work at Jewish Voice. And so I didn't know if he was Jewish or Amish or uh, I'm not sure. So oh, is what is with the that I, what I would probably guess is ultra orthodox. Look, is there a commandment of long beards? What are the hanging pieces of string? Does that still apply now? Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Every rabbi has his traditions, his interpretation of Torah, and his traditions are taken up by his followers and become the traditions of the children and grandchildren. On and on we go, like many religious practices and systems around the world. But the original concept here. Let me talk about the facial hair first. Again, how do we distinguish Israelite men, Hebrew men, from the Egyptian and pagan cultures they were taken out of? And at the time, because of some pagan worship practices, men would actually, I mean, you, you see this kind of, there's a resurgence of it today, actually like trimming the, the, the corners of their hair near their ears in such a way as to represent deities or, or, or systems they were subscribing to, religious systems. And so God's saying, I want you to do the opposite. I want you to intentionally leave, in essence, your sideburns, the, the patches of hair that grow around your ears, uncut, 
to distinguish you in appearance from the people around you because you're set apart from me. And so not cutting the hair, they're called actually payas in Yiddish, kind of in the Slavic, Jewish, European language that developed over the centuries, or in Hebrew, peot. And it's really referring to the hair directly in front between your temple and your ear. And so you've seen the curls, right? Why are these grown, self-respecting Jewish men, why do they have perms on the hair on the side of their ears? And why is it so long? Are they just trying to be weird? No, it's a fulfillment of a specific Torah commandment from after deliverance from slavery in Egypt, not to cut the hair in front of our ears. What was the spirit of it? Whether people should still practice it or not today, let's not get into that. But the spirit of the thing was I want you to look different. I want you to be visibly different from the people who are getting haircuts that represent the pagan religious practices they subscribe to. And so that's the idea with the hair. How that moves on to facial hair, it's a long rabbinical conversation we're not going to have today. But the original idea behind what we can say the unusual facial hairstyles of Jewish men is is from uh, the Torah don't look like the Egyptians and the other pagan worshipers around you. And then the final question you asked about the fringes, or we can say the tassels, right? You've seen the men in black clothing, or maybe it isn't black clothing, but they have these white fringes, sometimes with a blue thread coming out from the corners of their, their pants or their shirt. What on earth is going on? Are they just trying to look fancy? No, that also comes from a Torah commandment, and it says you should make for yourselves what's called tzitzit in Hebrew, tassels or fringes, let's call them fringes, on the corners of your garment. And if we remember in that day, men were wearing kind of four-cornered garments, longer things that were one piece or a couple pieces, but they went down to the ground. And so the idea was when you're walking, your hands are going to brush against these tzitzit, these fringes. And God says, these are, the purpose of these is for you to look upon or to feel them, but to look upon and to remember the commandments I've given you. Why? Because God understood that the Jewish people, like everyone else, but even more so because of our stubbornness, were prone to forget what he's asked us to do. And so he's saying, I want you for yourself and for the people looking at you, and as you look at the other men around you, to actually have a visible and a tactile reminder all day long that I've called you to be holy to me. And so that's the idea. And to this day, now there's different colors, there's different traditions and how you tie the knots, there's different lengths of these tzitzit. But the idea is to look upon them and remember what God's commanded us to do. And, you know, a lot of Christians may say, oh, yeah, I remember Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for making their tassels long. He wasn't rebuking them for wearing tassels. Jesus most likely was fulfilling Torah, right? He says, I'm the fulfillment of the law. He very likely had seat seat. He had fringes on the corners of his garments. Why? Because God commanded our people Israel to do it. And Jesus was a Torah observant Jewish rabbi. But what he was rebuking them for was, you're wearing these things to be seen by men, not to remember what I've commanded you to do. And that's so much of Jesus' language, not canceling the Torah, but saying, if you're doing this for outward appearance and not as a reflection of, of a tenderness in your heart, to me, you've missed the whole thing. So that's not something that needs, like, you don't need to wear those now. You know, within the Messianic Jewish community, Carly, some men do wear them. Some men wear them under their clothing. I know a number of um, friends, followers of, of, of Jesus. Some are Messianic rabbis, some are medical doctors, some uh, work with us here at Jewish Voice who actually wear at least one tassel to this day. Now, you don't see it, 
but it's under their clothing. Maybe they have a hole in their pocket and they feel it because they want to remember, Lord, I need a tactile reminder of what you've commanded me to do. Others say, you know, according to the scriptures, the new covenant is written on my heart, not on tablets of stone. So by God's Holy Spirit, he's reminding me at all times of his word. Is one answer right and is one wrong? Not going there today. What do I do? Not going there today. But I will say that that I have a lot of respect for Jewish believers who continue to wear the tassels. And I have a lot of respect for Jewish believers who say, you know what, I'm trusting, I'm dependent upon the Holy Spirit to continue to remind me that God's written his word, his law, his His holy expectations for me on my heart. And that's what enables me by his spirit to keep them. And while that might seem strange to some listeners. I mean, I know even growing up when I was Catholic, you know, my grandfather kept a rosary in his pocket and it was something to hold on to, to remember something very similar. So it, the practice can be different, but the the concept seems to be the same. Everybody can look down upon somebody else's tradition and excuse the one that we subscribe to. So that's my encouragement for our non-Jewish audience is, you know, you see these things. I know the curls look odd. I know it's strange to see a man on an 85 degree day with 160% humidity in Manhattan dressed in full black with these tassels hanging down. Understand that the intention of this in the religiously observant community is to try to be holy to a God who called our people to to be holy. Now we understand, and you as a Christian understand, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the only way to truly be holy in the eyes of a holy God is to be made holy by the blood of his son, our Passover lamb, the savior of the world. But rather than then looking back at the Jewish community with judgment or misunderstanding, I wanna encourage you look with compassion and understand that God's opened your eyes to something that many people who fervently pursue holiness and Torah observance day after day have a callousness on our hearts towards and respond with some compassion, some prayer, some relationship, and from sharing truth from a place of love and a desire for understanding. Don't write it off and say, that's crazy, that's weird, that looks funny to me. Well, thanks for explaining, Ezra. Hopefully you've saved the rest of us any awkward conversations that we probably haven't been having with our Jewish friends. To our listeners, thanks again so much for listening this week. You can support us uh, by going to a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. There's different partnership opportunities there. We also offer our Lost Tribes coffee there that you can get delivered to your door uh, as often as you'd like. We're also giving away a free bag of that coffee every month right now. And if you want to participate in that giveaway, you can text JG to 474747. If you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review. Share this podcast with someone you know. You can also follow us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. Thanks so much for listening this week. Join us next week for another episode. This show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.